Hello and welcome back to the Thunder Six Podcast. I am your host Ben Kreider and today I'm going to be recapping the Thunder Utah Jazz game. Really this is just going to be a Lou Dort special. I think we all know what happened yesterday. So I'm going to be going not only over the stats that he provided but also every single play that he had in the game. Going to be breaking down exactly what happened to get him in situations where he was able to be successful. So just getting right into the game, setting the stage for Lou Dort's big night, we had SGA still out. And with when SGA's out and Poku is out too, you gotta find your primary guy. Lou Dort was gonna be that. He had 18 first quarter points for the Oklahoma City Thunder, and he was one of the major reasons as to why they got a double-digit lead in the first. First time we've seen them get a double-digit lead in the month of April. It's been five games since they last had a double-digit lead that came against the Toronto Raptors, literally won by 10 points. I don't know if they had a lead before that or if at the final buzzer that was the, that was it, like that was their largest of the game, but they barely got there, and they actually surpassed 10 points. They were up 24-12 to 12 before you saw how to burn a timeout. They really could not stop Lou Dort in particular. He was really feeling it from downtown, started 6-7, of seven from the field and had 16 of the team's first 24 points had a 22 to 6 run that's really what got them up a big lead but then Utah they actually replied back they scored eight straight points to make it a single digit lead entering the second quarter so Thunder were up as large as 17 in the first 12 dwindled it down they were only up 31 to 22 entering that second quarter and you still had Lou Dort you had to worry about. As I talked about, 18 first quarter points. Shot 7 of 10 from the floor. Nobody was able to really hold him. And he also forced a charge. So going into that second quarter, you already know Quinn Snyder was getting mad at his guys. He wanted Lou Dort to be shut down. And they did a much better job doing that because Lou Dort was silenced for the most part. He only had 22 points by halftime so yeah only four points for him but he did add on two more drawn charges so defensively he was completely sound but ultimately that's not you know that's not what gets you the games at least as of right now you need to be putting up points Dort he was feeling in the first quarter nobody was really there to fill that role for him in the second so you just kind of slowly saw the Thunder lead chip away got whittled down and it was single digits at the midway point and then eventually, they lost their advantage. They were down at the 5-minute, 22nd mark. And right when that happened, you know what Mark Dagnalt did? He threw Lou Dort in the lineup. So in that major kind of plummeting of the Thunder, you didn't see Dort. It was the second unit, but they inserted him. He didn't score a ton, as I talked about. Only two made field goals. But he did help out defensively, and he really just slapped a Band-Aid on a pretty bad period for them. So... They ended up being down 55-53 to by half. So just a two-point game, that's not bad whatsoever. When you think about how they were up 17, maybe it just gets a little bit worse, but you don't really dwell on it. You got 24 minutes to kind of rethink your plans, and that's what they were trying to do there. I mean, when you're talking about how the game was rolling, it was a back-and-forth duel for most of that way through. Obviously, Oklahoma City got out early and often and then the Utah Jazz kind of replied back but they made seven and eight 
threes, respectively. OKC hit seven, Utah hit eight. That's 45 points coming right outside of that perimeter. And there was really no ground, you know, from either side, at least percentage-wise. Field goal-wise, they're making about the same, same clip. Same thing goes from downtown, as they talked about. But the major factor for Utah came from that charity stripe. And it's something that the Thunder have really struggled with ever since SGA has been out of the lineup, say specifically as we, we've gotten on our losing streak. Free throws have been really hard to come by. And it's really common to see the Thunder just get absolutely blasted in that category. So they ended up losing that margin by six. Utah had 11 attempts while Oklahoma City only got to the line five times. And I believe like one of those or two of those free throws came at like the very end of that uh, that quarter. So they had a very tough time trying to get to the line and getting easy looks, just free points basically. And with Utah getting to the line more, that's why they were up two points. And the Utah Jazz, they continued to be extremely hot to begin that second half. They scored the first 12 points, held OKC blank on their first six tries, and Oklahoma City saw a little bit of life. You know, after they missed their six shots, I think they made one, missed their next two, so they were one for eight. And then there was this play right corner, and Darius Baisley was trying to defend a shot. He was trying to recover. I believe it was Bojan Bogdanovich who went up for a right corner three, got it off, and they ruled that Darius Baisley had actually fouled him on the way up. And this was a pretty pivotal call because the Jazz were already up 14. If you're going to put Bogdanovich on the line, that's practically three points, you know, two if you're getting a good break there. He's a really good free throw shooter. So if they're up 17 in a matter of minutes, you are in a terrible spot. So Dagnalt called the timeout to try to review it. Honestly, when I was looking at it, I didn't think it was going to get overturned, but it actually did. So OKC, they caught a major break, and you know that's kind of a momentum shifter in a lot of cases, but they were not able to really get much out of it. They got a basket on one end, so that's good. You get it down to a baker's dozen. But then Utah, they got back to what they were accustomed to, went right out to the perimeter, nailed a three, and it kind of just went silent on OKC's side. So they could not really get anything to go. And by the end of the third, they were down 88 to 69. It got as bad as them being down 20 in the third quarter. So it was not looking good. And heading into that fourth, didn't really seem like there was much hope for the Thunder roster. There was one good bright spot, and it was in Lou Dort, who was on the doorstep of a career high in points. One thing that I always hate and I, I know I'm going to be talking about it when I recap like the final stats too. But one thing I hate is on these broadcasts, whenever they say career high, they're talking about in-season career highs, which doesn't make sense to me. Like Lou Dort's career high, you know, with quotation marks, asterisks, whatever, entering the um, the last game was 26 points. And that's not really true. He had 30 points in game seven versus the Houston Rockets. I don't know why you wouldn't count that. And, you know, number one, if you want to try to separate it, whatever. But if Will Chamberlain scored 100 points in a playoff game, let's say instead of an in-season game, it was in the playoffs where Chamberlain dropped 100, you wouldn't say the, you know, most points scored in a basketball game was Kobe Bryant with 81 points. That's ridiculous. It doesn't matter if it's in, in the playoffs. Honestly, if you do it in the playoffs, you deserve 
you know, something attached to your name. That's even bigger of a deal because, you know, sometimes teams will get really high scoring outputs on some pretty trashy teams. Doesn't work like that in the playoffs. So I don't get it. I mean, Bally Sports was riddling off 26 the whole time. I was searching up on the internet. I mean, it's 26, 26. No way it was 26. It was 30 points. So entering the fourth quarter, he could actually break that. He'd get up to 31. And guess what? I wouldn't have to worry about it because there's multiple different times. I think when Lou Dort got his 26 points, it's like, dude, that that's not his career high. So I don't know. Uh, kind of got some relief here because Lou Dort got exactly what I was wishing for. Dagnall decided to throw him into the lineup for the fourth quarter. Got a little bit shaky to begin the period because Utah, they were up as large as 25 points. But when you get Lou Dort going, as we saw in this game, there's really no way in stopping him. He's a freight train. So he started feeling it again. He was kind of piecing streaks together. Eclipsed the 30-point mark. Got to 31. So, hey, now you don't have to worry. Unanimous career high in points already passed it no need for debate which I don't even understand why it would be one because obvious reasons but it's over now it doesn't matter and you know what happened he sat right back down on the bench and he had a 40 piece waiting right for him Mark Dagnall said after the game that Lou Dort willingly decided like he asked to get out of the game for a little bit of a break And I understand why. I mean, he's playing the best game of his career. And he had to guard one of the best shooting guards in the league in Donovan Mitchell. So he's definitely super tired. But he ended up coming back. And he continued to just put the team on his back. Bucket after bucket. Going right through the Jazz defenders. Didn't matter if it was a three mid-range interior shot. It was going in in the fourth. He had another 18-point quarter. That's a career high in quarter. Quarter points for him. And he did it twice in the same exact game. So when you add it all together, Lou Dort had 42 points in the game. Could have got it to 44. He got to the line for three. Only went one of three. Doesn't matter though. 42 points in the game. Oklahoma City was not able to get the prize in the victory. But it's okay because, hey, now you're sitting at 20 and 34 and your lottery odds keep improving. They got the six best odds right now, but that's not even the star of the show here. The star of the show isn't talking about potential assets we could have. It's the one we have right now in Lou Dort, 21 years old. Bring him on as a defensive specialist. Had to work from the OKC Blue to even get minutes. Really big success story. You guys can find a ton about you know just how he was able to make it in the league to begin with. But now, he was the best player on the basketball court in the entire league last night. Had the most points. I think behind him was like Paul George. He dropped 36, 38, whatever. Not touching Lou Dort. So he had 42 points in the game. Also had seven rebounds, three assists, and four steals. Excellent performance from him. Ended up getting a question you know, where he was able to kind of hype himself up just a little bit. And he said he was cooking. And, but he didn't didn't win the game. And then he kind of reiterated. He was still feeling it though. So he got in the zone. Everyone in the post-game interviews was just hyping him up for good reason. And, you know, because of his big game, 
he not only is going to be known for the season, but he's actually going to get plastered into the record books again. Seems like a lot of players this season are finding their way into history. Maybe because they're all super young, but you know, 42 points. You don't really look at an age when you check that accolade. That is a big time number. Sixth person in Oklahoma City history to reach that. He ends up joining SGA, KD, Westbrook, James Harden, and Paul George in that list. And he also becomes the second Thunder player under 21 or 21 years old to hit 40. Kevin Durant is the lone member in that grouping. So he's in a really prestigious class. And also on top of that, as I talked about with SGA, his season high for this year was 42 points. Also his career high. So they're tied there. And the team's season high in points right now for a single game is now split between Dort and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. So he was completely balling out. I mean, when you looked at what he did in the previous game where he only had 15 points whenever he returned on Sunday versus 76ers, like it was a good game. Don't get me wrong. I think he had about three turnovers and it wasn't the biggest glaring issue with him. I know Bays had nine, so you can't really nitpick on what was going on there. But there was definitely room for improvement. Like, they were expected to go in and play and have that SGA role. They were going to be the stars of the show. Baisley had 17, Dort had 15, so they're still pretty high up there in points. But they didn't really star. And for all those people really wanting Dort to break out and be the guy, they... They were really impressed. I think everybody's super impressed. And those people complaining, they couldn't have even imagined a game like this coming from him. And you still have 17 more games because he's not going to be playing against the Warriors. 17 more games, he can ball out. And I'm expecting this won't be the last time. But just going into how he played in the game, you need to break down the numbers as a whole. Now, he ended up shooting the ball 31 times in the game clearly that's the most he shot in a game and he hit 15 of them but what's even more impressive about that is he hit seven threes in the game and he's kind of had a wishy-washy three-point shot this season not gonna lie it was sitting around 32 percent before the game and I'm assuming it went up not by a lot probably but it definitely got shifted up because he went seven of 11 from downtown That's going to tie the most we've seen from the team in the season. Poku, he hit seven seven three-pointers in like a week or two ago. So you get to join that accolade stacking and stacking. You could probably find endless combinations on where he'd slot in because it was that good of a game for him. But yeah, he was really feeling it. And when you look at what he was doing from the perimeter, there was a clear pattern from him. And it starts from the shot selection. Lou Dort has been known to be sitting in the corner. He didn't attempt a three a single time from the left or the right corner. All 11 of his shots came from either the left wing, the right wing, or right in the middle, the top of the key. Make or miss, that's where he was dialing up from, and he sure was feeling it. And the variation of shots he was getting was absolutely insane. And I think it's credited to Mark Dagnalt and some of these other guys in the rotation. Isaiah Roby has been a guy who, ever since he's been lodged out of that small ball five position, 
has kind of been a man on his own because he kind of did have some direction and role when he was playing small ball five like he was playing starting minutes some games if not starting minutes he'd still have a good rotational time at the four and the five and he knew what you had in him he was going to set screens he could be a pick and pop guy pick and roll guy and he would hustle for the rebounds but now with him kind of taken away from the five since we have tony bradley he's not playing at the five anymore and he's turned into more of a perimeter centric player and less of a enforcer when it comes to screens and all that. And one thing that I noticed from last game was how Mark Dagnalt was using Isaiah Roby again as a screen man, kind of reverting to his old ways. And it worked out amazing. And it starts out with the elevator screens. And if you don't know what the elevator screens are, really trying to break it down, typically you're going to use two different screen guys for this, but it ended up working because Roby's man in Bogdanovich, or actually scratch that, I think it was Ilyasova, he was just playing paint the whole game, so it really didn't matter, you didn't need two guys, anyways, in these plays, you're gonna have some other dude in one of the wings dribbling the ball, and whoever you want to have the three-point shot with, in this case, it's gonna be Lou Dort, he's gonna be around that free throw line, like right at the line, and then he's just gonna bolt up to the top of the key, and Isaiah Roby, since no one was guarding him, kind of was just in no man's land. And you use that kind of as a sense of protection. Like he was shielding Dort off. So Roby would kind of be like a doorway. Like he would let Lou Dort in. And then right as Donovan Mitchell caught on and, you know, tried sprinting over to get him, that door shuts. He scoots over, plants his feet, gets in screen position, and he's going to hinder Mitchell for a little bit. And that buys time for Dort. And he's got a pretty quick release now. Didn't always seem to be the case, but he's really sped it up. And because of that, even when you only got one guy setting that screen, you're going to be good to go. So he's at the top of the key. He's feeling it. He ended up draining two of those shots based off that exact same play. Literally identical. You can check the first elevator screen set by Roby in the second one. Exact same result. I think it also just swished in as well. And that wasn't it for Roby. He was also setting on-ball screens for Lou Dort. So top of the key was kind of coming off of catch-and-shoot situations where those ball screens really helped him out on the wings. So you saw Roby set one to free him up in open space. Baisley set one to get him in open space. And Tony Bradley set one. Literally pancaked Donovan Mitchell. This was fourth quarter. You know, game was actually kind of close. Like they shred this thing, the, the single digits. They had to get the Jazz players to to close it out for him. But they had Tony Bradley out there instead of Moses Brown. And Dort was operating right wing. And he was kind of just holding the ball out, seeing what he could find. Because he really was feasting everywhere, as I talked about. He could kind of pick his options. And he got a high ball screen from Tony Bradley. So he sets it. And Dort, he tries going through it, gets right around him. Donovan Mitchell gets stuck big time like he fell in the trap he fell right on the ground looks like it just took the breath out of him like this was really wild like he just flops right down and from the way it looked to me seemed like everybody on that floor probably even Donovan Mitchell Bradley Dort they all thought the play was dead if you see a guy fall down like Donovan Mitchell did off a Bradley screen you would kind of think the same thing too. Like it looked like a man had just been knocked out. 
So he falls, no call, kind of just total silence. Nobody's really doing anything on the court. I think Ty Drone might have been like walking back to the other side and nothing happens. So Dort, Cox back, fires the three. It is good to go. And he adds on to his collection. So he was really just working off the screens in order to to get the, the good looks. And there was also another play top of the key where Ty Jerome hit him and just nailed it. And then there was also another kind of fast break opportunity like the the defense and offense were both kind of forming. Teo Maladon just sprints into the paint and he showed this a lot in France and he also showed it a lot to begin the season like preseason and maybe first two months of the regular season. Haven't seen a lot in a while though the jump pass he brought it back running down the court using the left hand a dribble going up from the left wing and he sees Isaiah Roby in the right corner and he thinks that there's kind of an opening there and when he has that tiny room that tiny window of opportunity he's gonna take it 10 times out of 10 and he is very good at throwing jump passes so he elevates gets right over his defender and throws it on a dime to Roby goes right where it's needed to be and now whenever Roby gets the ball he's got a guy already on him so he really can't shoot because he's kind of getting closed out on and it'd be sort of contested but the main thing that happened with this play was Bojan Bogdanovic was caught ball watching you know the assignments when it comes to those broken plays you can't pinpoint somebody very well couldn't have been entirely Bogdanovic's fault but he kind of got caught sulking down into the interior and because of it Lou Dort was wide open at the top of the key and Roby just chucked it right up there and he teed it off good to go really with him it was just second nature for Dort to be launching these shots Jazz they were they had no chance at really stopping him I mean to be quite honest with you he was locked in and some of those shots that he was taking, you know, I'm kind of making them out like they were wide open. They went under screens a ton. So I'd say a good majority of them were actually just super open. But there were a couple where there were good closeouts from guys like Donovan Mitchell, but he still was able to hit the three anyway. So I think it's a real testament to how Dort was feeling from beyond the arc. When he gets in the zone, he gets in the zone. So that's just how it is with him. And it's not just from three. I mean, he was killing it almost as well in the mid-range too. And it's kind of weird because in the modern NBA, the mid-range shot is just hated by everybody. You don't want to be caught taking mid-range shots. If you have a three, take the three or go for a layup. You saw the Houston Rockets structure their team last year around not shooting mid-range jumpers. I mean, Westbrook might be the outlier, in that unit, but everybody else, they didn't want guys who are going to be shooting in the mid range. They didn't want guys slowing down the pace. They wanted perimeter shooters and they wanted slashers to the basket. And that's just how everybody's been working now. You got guys like Steph shooting from three and you know what everybody's doing growing up. They want to be shooting threes. So just the philosophy has changed and mid range kind of been dried out. And it's been the same across the board. Lou Dort in particular only 13.9% of his shots entering Tuesday's game were coming from the mid-range area. And I'm talking like the 5 foot to 19 foot range. 
just anywhere right outside of like under that under the rim to just the long two so it's a pretty big area and you're just hardly seeing anybody shoot from there and that's just been Lou Dort 1.6 attempts have been in that zone for him on average a game and against the Jazz that shot up he shot the ball 11 different times in the mid-range and out of those 31 tries if you want to break down the math that's a little over 35 percent of shots so about three times as more likely to be shooting from mid-range than a typical game for Lou Dortz and you know there was a good reason for him to be doing that like the Jazz for every perimeter shot they were giving up they were giving up two of them whether it was slashing the paint or finding him in the mid-range and he just was going right at him when it came to picking his spots in the lane and it comes back to just the screen setting they were doing a terrible job kind of rotating you got guys caught in space really all the time and you found this sort of one-two punch in Dort and Moses Brown in the game all four of the primary mid-range jumpers from Lou Dort in the game they all came off of a screen set by Brown and some of them were high ball screens some of them were just set in the mid-range and he was able to feast off of them but they all yielded the same result and that's why it matters two points is two points and they were just picking apart Rudy Gobert the whole time if you remember when the Thunder played the Utah Jazz the first game in the season the reason we lost that game came down to how we defended the screens Al Horford played really bad he could not step up at all he was stuck in the paint he was not hedging on screens he was not showing a little bit of help to Lou Dort so you know what would happen you had a singular screen from Gobert or you'd see a game of Plinko going on where you'd have double screen after double screen Mitchell would go around him and he'd have a wide open pull-up jumper you can't allow that and you know what happened in this game you flipped the script so Moses Brown was setting the screens and Rudy Gobert was the one getting caught under the basket kind of getting a sense of confusion for himself but also for Donovan Mitchell so you'd get the screens set by Moses Brown and Rudy Gobert you know he would kind of get those sudden moments where he would try to switch because instinctively that's the mindset you'd get a, a quick switch between Mitchell and Gobert like Mitchell's good to go he's on Moses Brown Gobert he's stepping up but then you kind of get that sudden realization of holy crap Moses Brown is seven foot one and have you seen this guy jump if he's getting the ball on Donovan Mitchell there's really no chance of him being stopped the best opportunity you have is you hack him and you make him take two shots at the line and that's not good you don't want to be giving away freebies so Rudy Gobert he would kind of tense up on Dort he'd get in that weird phase where He's trying to defend both, but you really can't do that because there's a five-foot gap between Dort and Brown. So we give up too much space. And in some cases, it would be as simple as Lou Dort just pulling it and there was little to no resistance from Gobert. Like there was no contest. This is a shoot-around jump shot for him. He'd be running around the floor, you know, whether it be driving in from the left wing, pulling it right at the top of like the free throw line or whatever and you'd be set but there was one play in particular where I will say Rudy Gobert did a fantastic job defending Lou Dort 
And it came off of one of those screens that were set up top at the three. Gobert was still down below. So Mitchell, he ends up getting hit with the screen. And you're going to get that switch because Mitchell's too far behind. Gobert's going to need to kind of advance up. And now you got a one-on-one. And the way Gobert was kind of positioned, there was no way you're getting the ball to Moses Brown. So this is a this is a situation where it's man versus man. There's nobody to bail you out. And Lou Dort, he originally goes for a pump fake and no bite. He goes for he goes for a jab and it gets him maybe a couple inches, not much room. So he has about a foot of space to work with here on Rudy Gobert, who's over seven feet tall, and I don't have the exact wingspan on me, but I I probably am gonna assume it's over seven feet as well. So getting a shot over him is gonna be a very tough task. So he ends up fading away for his shot, like right around that free throw line. And he got it off by a matter of inches. Like Rudy Gobert was almost there. He almost got his eighth block on the game off of that shot. He was feasting with or without, you know, that block from him. But it was close. And he got a crazy arc on it. Just rainbow shot and it went right in. So that was a major one for me. That was the play that stuck out from the mid-range category the other ones were kind of in that same suit where as I mentioned you would get a screen up top from Brown and Rudy Gobert would get all tensed up and there was not a lot of contesting going on but he was really good and kind of stopping and popping and getting two points to go down but that wasn't the only area where he was getting two points as I talked about he was a three-level scorer in this game and he had even more points coming from in the paint going right at players attacking the basket and I think there's one area in his game that has gradually improved where it really hasn't been too like up and down it's been in how he's attacked the rim like we got him from the G League he was a defender as I mentioned but he also was all right when it came to finishing like he had some clips of him dunking getting some tough layups to go in so he was good but you know he didn't have the real specialty moves to him and he went from just this project piece inside to Game seven, he's a monster truck in the paint, just pushing guys out of the way and getting free layups. And you wanted to see if he could keep moving with that. And you kind of think, you know, where is there to grow here? Because he's already very good at just muscling his way through. looks like he's on steroids. And he somehow found a way to do it. So he added a couple more tricks up his sleeve, and he kind of showed all of them in this game. So the moves that were super prevalent for him came through the sidesteps and this spin moves and on the surface those two moves don't really sound that major but i'm kind of going to go into it and on the surface those two moves may not seem like a big addition but it really was and it showed in this game so just starting with the sidestep like a good majority of his layups were coming off of those sidesteps and really what that move is used for is you're going in fast break or you get an isolation situation you try to get to that second level and you face a defender and you got a full head of steam. You don't think you're going to be able to posterize the guy. And if you're going up, I mean, you're going to be meeting bodies because whoever's down below, he's also real angry and he wants to smack the ball out of your hands. So the sidestep, you go into it and that one motion, you're kind of losing a little bit of your momentum, but you kind of still have a bit of steam. Whereas the defender camp down low, instinctively whenever they see a guy kind of move like a different direction 
they're going to get a little bit off balance. And quite frankly, they're probably anticipating you're just going for a normal contact layup anyways. So the sidestep catches them off guard, catches them off balance, and it gives you the extra space to kind of operate and get your shot off uh, the glass. And that's what he was doing a ton. I'm talking transition. I'm talking set me a screen. Let me go right at Rudy Gobert and just feast. That's what he did. And there was no real help from anybody. I mean, I don't really know how you would be able to help out on Lou Dort when he's in the in the zone like that anyway. So that's how it was working whenever he was finishing. And because of it, Quinn Snyder, I think he just wanted to put an end to it. And he said, you know what? The whole entire game plan is going to have to be structured around this guy. No one else seems to have a hot hand like him. You shut him down. The whole team shuts him down. And it was a good game plan because it ended up working in the win-loss column. But he was still feeling it. And he wasn't only using the paint to make his layups, but he was also using the paint to get open looks for other players. So he was kind of just going right through damn near being like a battering ram just crushing through the first level the second level the third level of defenders and he was getting an open space and he was kind of freezing up the center and one play in particular he gets right to the rim and he's able to do just a simple handoff to Moses Brown that's an easy jam for him when you leave him wide open and with um with how the game was going Sunday really just complete opposites here because I think they had 12 turnovers in this game, kind of sliced it in half, but um, that's kind of besides the point. But yeah, I mean, a lot of the turnovers from Sunday came off of these dribble handoffs where they get right under the rim, and they try throwing it, but there's kind of defenders all clogged up. Well, the way Dort was working with that mid-range shot, you had Rudy Gobert pulling up, so he wasn't just waiting at the rim for someone to match him. You know, if you're going to be a threat from mid-range, you're going to be recognized. And that's what happened in that play. Easy dump down pass to Moses Brown. But clearly, the best move from him in the entire game came from a spin move that resulted in a Darius Baisley three. So the setup for this play came from, you guessed it, another high ball screen and it came from Darius Baisley. So Lou Dort was sitting at the left wing. Baisley's going to set a screen to allow him to get to the middle of the paint. So he's not going to be going through that left baseline, left wing area. And the man he ends up getting switched on to is Georges Nang. I think I mispronounced that just a little bit. But he got swapped on to him. And he's kind of a pretty burly forward for the most part. You know, I, I don't know the exact type. Probably like 6'8", six, 6'9". Six, so you can't really just run right into him and get an easy layup even with Lou Dort that might be a hard task so he has him swapped he has him swapped and he's kind of trying to get that first step on him so he can really accelerate and get to the basket so he gets the screen kind of gets that step and then he gives a little bit of a spin move and it was actually on Bogdanovich by the way I don't know how I jacked that up but he gives a spin move on Bogdanovich because Lou Dort he had the pressure from his left side give this spin move completely swap him off But in his peripheral, he wasn't even paying attention to Bogdanovich. He wasn't paying attention to the second layer and Rudy Gobert either. He was looking at his original man, Donovan Mitchell. And this is something that typical players probably aren't even going to spot out. They might just chuck up a shot and hope that they don't get rejected. So he goes into this spin move and in the corner of his eye, he sees that Donovan Mitchell 
has left Darius Baisley on an island. He was at the left wing to begin the play. Now he seeped down below into the mid-range, got a foot in the paint, and Dort completes that spin, elevates, and just chucks it in midair, goes right to Darius Baisley. He grabs it, and you know by the time Mitchell is able to turn around and even put a hand up, that shot is already good to go anyways. So that was kind of the capitalized play. I don't know if that's on Sports Center. It probably should because that was completely wild from his part to make it work, but it, it was also seamless. And I think this whole game was kind of like that for him somehow. Like we got such a big treat here and the different ways he affected the game. You're not going to see just a complete package like this in a long, long time. And folks, I only talked about the offensive side of Dort's game from yesterday. I didn't even go into the defense. And the defense was so good that, you know, I was trying to gather up some tape. If you guys don't know, I pieced together these major games posted on my website, Kyle Singler or MVP.com. Give me a new domain name, please. Like, please do that. But I posted all, add the clips up, and some of the clips I couldn't find came on defense because that was kind of his strong suit. And it's like, how did you not get those plays? But he drew three charges in the first half alone. So he had one in the first quarter, two in the second quarter. Believe he might have also picked up one in that second half as well. But he was really dominant there. You couldn't find tracings of either of them, but he was just pesky. And then also those four steals and just holding Donovan Mitchell accountable for the whole entire game. And if you don't know, Mitchell was entering this game probably on the biggest streak of the season for him. In his last four, he was averaging 40 and a half points, really just not missing anything. He was knocked down from the floor. And in this game, he was really just completely shut down. He had 22 points, which for a typical game, you know, that's pretty solid. But whenever Dort was faced onto him, this guy in Donovan Mitchell he looked like a role player. He didn't look too hot because he only hit three field goals on Lou Dort. And that bread and butter play, as I was talking about with the double screens, were not working. The plan that was used in the first game against the, the Thunder, it worked great because Horford wasn't helping and Dort was kind of getting trapped under screens. He kept fighting over them. So only one of his main shots on Dort came off of screens the other two had to be created on his own makeshift isolation plays getting step backs off sending out prayers and he hit two of them so he got two three-pointers in a mid-range eight points that's not good for a superstar that's not good for an all-star not good for a top player on your team to be quite honest with you so he was just not able to feel any sort of gauge only time he got in shape was whenever he was getting to the free throw line or when Dort was checked out you got back to him shooting screens shooting off screens and then um, also just pulling up in transition stuff like that but yeah Dort made it real rough for him and he he must have had a really bad face on whenever Dort checked back into that scores table because you already knew when Dort was coming in nothing was coming through him so Dort was shutting him down but he was also shutting down the entire roster and it ended up starting by just baiting some of these jazz uh, jazz players on offense. And it started with Georges Nang. And I talked about him a second ago. Wasn't his fault. This one was actually his fault. So he was taking the ball up. And he's kind of, kind of going like, you know, left side of the floor. 
He goes through the left wing, and he's about to hit the left baseline. And there's a player in the left corner for him to pass to, and that's kind of his only option because he's kind of getting trapped. He can't move. He can't kind of go backwards because he's clamped up from his right side. Now, Lou Dort, he decides to leave his man on that left corner and try to trap him, just eliminate the whole entire areas of the court, get the trap now. You don't need him in a corner. You don't need him pinned up against the timeline. Let's do it right here, right now. So he gets up on him and he tries hoisting, you know, an over-the-head pass to his man in the corner. Didn't work out because Dort also elevated, swatted the ball, and just immediately went the other way with the basketball. And that's just kind of what set the tone for him because a few plays later, you had Bogdan Bogdanovich, who he's getting the ball. He's in the fast break. He's taking it a little bit wobbly here. Like the ball handling was not amazing for him. I don't think he's known for his ball handling anyways, but he's going up, crosses the timeline, and he has Dort kind of in hot pursuit of him. So if he had the ball in his left hand, he's good because Dort was on his left side, but he swapped over to the left hand for a split second and Dort picked his pocket cleanly. The ball rolled almost to the opposite out-of-bounds line, and it just turned into kind of a tug-of-war match, and Dort ended up snagging it, went the other way, and you were good to go. And then there was also another playoff of a rebound. I think Derek Favors was the Jazz player involved with it, but he hauls the board down. Took him a little bit of time to kind of collect himself, and Dort wasn't just letting it go away. He went right up next to him, pinned him against the out-of-bounds line, and just ripped the ball away from him, took it the other way. And then you also had a play, I think it also was with Bogdanovich again, where he's dribbling top of the key, and there's a screen set to try to free him up. Lou Dort just knifes his way right around it, steals the ball, and takes it the other way for a nice old slam. You know, he didn't get all the way up there, so he went up like it was going to be a two-hand rim grazer. It was about a couple inches off, so he just kind of popped it up there, went in for him, but I'm going to count it as a dunk anyways, and that's just kind of how he recapped it. So he did it on both ends. This was one of the most kind of decorated two-way games I've seen this whole entire season, maybe even beyond that. You know, I'd want to go probably in, in franchise history, but I, I don't think I want to go there just yet, but this was a glaring bright spot. And it was so good to the fact that, like I said, he's not even going to be playing against the Golden State Warriors tonight because of it. So he's going to be out for an apparent shoulder injury. And Dagnall said it's really just due to maintenance. I understand why. You don't want to out like overwork him on a second day to a back-to-back when he just dropped career highs. And he was going up, you know, not just with his best offensive performance, but going up against one of the best offensive players in the NBA and shutting him down. A lot of energy exerted, so no need to kind of dry him out and move him on to Detroit Friday really tired. Just give him a break, give him two days off, and spring him back into action Friday. I think that's a good kind of game plan from Dagnalt. So we're going to see Dort Friday. Not going to see him against the Warriors. Also not going to see Poku. He's still going to be out. Going to be Baisley's time to shine also, Maladone, want to see how he does against Steph Curry. And, you know, I'll make sure to recap that game for you all as well. But other than that, though, guys, that is going to wrap up today's episode. I thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya.